You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ben Dominguez, who is using Flask and Python to build a site that teaches you how to use coding to win at fantasy football. Ben, welcome to the show. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Right. Uh, my name is Ben Dominguez. I'm a self-taught developer, mostly in Python and JavaScript. And I started learning to code about eight years ago when I was in high school. And at the beginning of this year, I got this idea that people might want to learn Python through fantasy football. And so I started this side project over at fantasyfootballdatapros.com. Uh, people who don't play fantasy football probably don't get this, but people get really obsessed with fantasy football, myself included. And a lot of people use Excel to do their analysis if they do any analysis at all, uh, besides relying on intuition and general football knowledge. And I thought maybe there was some room for including Python in the mix. Uh, Python is a great general purpose language, uh, very beginner friendly, uh, that allows you to write scripts and not deal with things like memory management and buffers and all that nasty computer science stuff. And it doesn't even require that you statically type things, even though I'm starting to use TypeScript now in all of my React code and TypeScript is awesome. But my point being, it's perfect for beginners just getting started. And I know that the best way to learn to code is to apply to something you enjoy. And that's exactly what my content and my course I'm selling on the site is aiming to do. I want to teach people to code by applying it to something they're frankly obsessed with, uh, which is fantasy football, and it's been working out great. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, I never would have thought to do something like that, but it makes total sense, right? It's like learning to code is so abstract. Like, yeah, you need to apply it to something, and why not use a niche that uh, people love? Exactly. When I first started to learn to code, the first book I picked up was actually... Um, I'm not sure if it's popular now, but it was popular at the time. It's called uh, Learn Python the Hard Way. And I went through the book and in a couple months, and I felt confident in my Python skills. I felt like I was an intermediate now because I read a beginner book. Um, and when I actually went down to write a Flask application, which was the first real project I used or I made, um, I realized that I didn't know that much at all about Python. Um, and I only started to really learn when I started to apply it to something and I started to apply it to something that was meaningful. Um, it was an application, it was like a social network kind of like Reddit that I was working on and I was like super engaged in it and the learning process just was exponential from there on. Um, and I'm trying to do the same thing when I teach people uh, Python, uh, just getting them started as quickly as possible, applying it to something they like because um, it just makes the learning process so much easier. Yeah, for sure. So going back to this platform you've built here, is this something you just worked on yourself then? Yes, it is. I'm the sole owner of the site. I've done 99% of the development. I do, from time to time, have uh, freelancers come in and help with some of the more menial development tasks of the business. Uh, for example, when the site first started, um, I tested the idea that there was some interest between the, the intersection between, you know, Python and fantasy football by just releasing blog posts on uh, WordPress. And when I moved the site over from WordPress to uh, Flask, part of, um, 
part of the problem was that my workflow was extremely inefficient because WordPress has this whole, uh, it's a content management system. So it has this whole UI where you can write blog posts and stuff. And I had to write raw HTML. Um, so in the beginning, I was just getting uh, freelancers to kind of do that for me. So I was writing code and markdown in Jupyter Notebook. And then I was getting freelancers to actually convert uh, the Jupyter Notebooks to HTML because literally converting the Jupyter Notebook to HTML would literally take half the time of writing the blog post. And I just didn't have that much time. And I wasn't, you know, making blog posts as often because it was de-incentivizing me. So I figured, hey, I'll just hire some freelancers and do that. Uh, but since then, I actually wrote a Python script um, that takes the markdown from the Jupyter Notebook I'm working on. And then it outputs it to an HTML file, it saves it to a correct directory, adds Jinja 2 templating with Blast, uh, saves the images from the Jupyter Notebook using Pillow to the correct directory and compresses them with Gulp.js and does all the work. And I basically automated half my work right there. Uh, so besides hiring those freelancers in the beginning, um, I'm pretty much doing all the development for the site. Nice. Yeah, I like when that happens, when you're just working on a project and naturally you think of ways to automate certain things. But going back to this project here, uh, if you know off the top of your head, like how long did it take you to go from, you know, just starting developing this, like an empty folder to shipping some type of MVP? I would say, well, like I said, it was first on WordPress. And uh, I would say my MVP was actually my first blog post because um, I was testing the assumption that, you know, there was an interest for Python and fantasy football. Um, for me to actually write the course and the, the code for the course, because the course is hosted on my site, you need to log in to log in and stuff. Um, it took me about three weeks to get in um, an early access version out. Uh, but since then, I've been working on it like crazy. Um, and it's been about two to two months since I released it. And I'm saying I'm, I'm thinking Pretty soon I'll be finished completely with the course and I'll move on to bigger things with the site, but I'm still working on the course. I'm still, um, you know, developing the UI and trying to make it more interactive and stuff like that. Uh, so I would say three weeks for an early access and then uh, two months to finish it completely. Okay. And as of like current day here, just so we have an idea of like, you know, the traffic levels of the site, uh, do you have any metrics that are interesting, like how many visitors per month or any, you know, anything that makes sense for your app? Right. Well, the site currently gets 1,000 users a week, uh, so 4,000 a month, um, half of which are returning users. The other half are new users, new traffic. And most of that traffic is actually organic or word of mouth. Uh, to this day, I've probably spent about $30 on advertising, to which I probably will never do again. Uh, most of my traffic comes from free sources, and I mean, it's been working out great. But yeah, about 4,000 a month. Um, since we launched, launched the course in April, we've had about 325 customers. Uh, so people have actually bought the course on our site. Um, and that's, that's been awesome because it's not even, it's not even fantasy football season yet. We are deep in the off season of fantasy football. To, so to see this level of interest so far out to fantasy football drafts in August, I mean, it's, it's super exciting. Very cool. So now maybe we can switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about your motivation for using Flask and Python in the end. Like you mentioned, you had, you know, you read that book, you learned uh, Python a bit, but like what made you choose Flask? Right. I just, I love Flask. I mean, I love the fl flexibility that Flask gives me when developing. The choice is really between Flask and Django as Python is kind of my bread and butter. Um, you know, say what you want about Python. People say Python is slow or whatever, but 
Python being a sole language has really had no impact on my application as far as I can tell or could have predicted. And so I didn't really have a problem with using Python as my backend. And so at that point, the choice was between Flask and Django, as those are the two most popular backend frameworks for Python. I'm actually starting to learn another backend framework called FastAPI. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, um, which I was unaware of when I was beginning to develop the application, but I like a lot and probably will use the next time I write a REST API. But yeah, it was between Flask and Django as those are the two most popular backend frameworks. And not to say that you should use the most popular technologies out there. You should use the technology that fits your application needs. But popularity does have a lot of benefits. Uh, if a framework is more popular, it's probably better documented. Also, there's a lot more Stack Overflow answers. You don't want to start developing an application, a brand new framework, and be the first person to run into a problem with the code. Uh, with Flask, almost every problem I have, um, I ran into uh, has been well documented or answered on Google or Stack Overflow, which has allowed me to push past bugs and roadblocks pretty quickly. Uh, but when it came down to Flask versus Django, I've used both. And I think once you learn Flask, there's really no going back. The flexibility that Flask allows you when developing is sort of like addicting. I love having control over every facet of my application, not having to worry about writing, you know, the Django way or any particular way, except for one that is consistent throughout my application. That's my real gripe with Django. I think it's a great framework, but I just don't like that it's so opinionated, but to each his own. Right. So the trade-off there is like you get to make more choices. Maybe it takes a little more gluing together specific libraries, but like, you know, that's kind of almost a plus in a way too, right? It's like you get to pick exactly what you want. Exactly. And I love that with Flask, um, it comes very lightweight. Um, and if you want to use an extension, you can use an extension. If you don't want to use an extension, you don't have to use an extension. And um, I just love having that control over my application. Um, also, another consideration I had was uh, my app is actually not that big. Uh, and Django is probably something I would have used if the application was much bigger. I think Django is much better at dealing with uh, just bigger projects in terms of the way they, the, the opinionation of, of Django helps a lot in that aspect because um, it forces you to organize your, your code. Um, and that's, that's a problem with, with uh, big projects. It's really not whether or not you can write uh, the project, whether or not you can build the project. It's how organized are you going to keep it. Right. So this project, though, speaking about your app, I mean, I took a look at the page before we hopped on the call here. I mean, is it more basically just like a video course platform where people can learn to code, you know, focused on fantasy football? I mean, that's like the main proposition of what the app is, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, we offer, what we offer is like a chapter text. So originally it was going to be an ebook, but uh, what I did was I was kind of slacking off and I wasn't releasing or working on the course, but I knew there were people who wanted to buy the course. And I was just slacking off. So what I did one day was I said, you know what? I'm just going to email everyone on my mailing list. I'm going to email and talk to everyone who's shown an interest in the product because I have been telling people about my plans to make the product that's coming out in three weeks. And at the time, it was supposed to be an ebook. Um, but I quickly found out like a week after setting that hard deadline for myself that I was not going to finish the ebook. Like there was no way. Um, so I started making videos, 
um, to compensate for that. So it's now, and the videos allow me to just finish sections much faster because I was able to talk and explain things a lot faster than I was able to write. Uh, so now the course is kind of like chapter text and then there's a video. And we also offer a Slack channel, uh, so like a special invite. So I have like a whole community hosted on there. Um, and I answer questions from people and stuff like that. And we also have like fantasy football leagues and stuff like that. So cool. Yeah, it's it's also kind of surprising to hear that uh, you were able to make videos faster than writing. For me, it's the, the total opposite because usually I end up having to write out some scripts to get an idea of what I even want to say. <laughs> Well, it's pretty much the same thing for my course because I, I just give them a source code and then I explain it all and that's it. So I already have the source code kind of written with the videos. I was just kind of going over it again and just like drilling down concepts. I'm really teaching people like the basics, basics of programming in the very beginning. And it's hard to elucidate that over text because these are it's kind of abstract. Like, how do you explain a for loop? Like, it, it's much easier for me to explain a for loop over a video where I can kind of iterate on the code while I'm showing it as opposed to text. That's just the way I teach, I guess. So going back to your site here, um, were there any specific Flask or Python libraries that you picked that really helped you, you know, get things together faster than, you know, having to write things by hand from scratch? Uh, one of the main considerations um, for choosing a, well, I, I don't think I've mentioned this already, but my app is server-side rendered. Um, and one of the decisions you have to make when developing is, do you want to do server-side rendering or do you want to separate the client and the server as much as possible and have a backend API and a client-side UI framework with React or Angular or Vue or whatever you want to use? Uh, one of the main uh, considerations I gave was um, authentication and how fast I can get an authentication system working. Um, and I had implemented token-based authentication, which is what you use when you separate the client and the server uh, with Redux before, but I hadn't done that in a long time. And Redux is heavy. Uh, it's, it's difficult to implement, at least it was the first time I did. And it was a lot less intuitive than just doing server-side authentication. And Flask login makes things super easy uh, to implement server-side authentication. So really what I was trying to do was bring this product to market as quickly as possible. And server-side authentication helped me a lot with that, and specifically Flask login. Uh, because it works very well with, um, with SQL Alchemy, which is the object relational mapper uh, I use, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, and it works well because basically with the object relational mapper, you can write a user class and then Flask login provides you with a uh, class that you can inherit from called, I believe it's called user mixin and your user class and your ORM inherits from that user mixing class, including the model class that comes from Flask SQL Alchemy. Um, and then that user mixin allows you to use these attributes like is authenticated. Um, is authenticated is probably the, the one I use the most. Check if the user is authenticated. And it also provides you with like this proxy object that you can get uh, the current user with this variable you just import called current user. Uh, so it just makes things really easy in terms of authentication. And it just made setting up an authentication system really fast. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of using Flask login. It's like the perfect level of low level, but high enough that I don't need to worry about the scary bits of like dealing with crypto and stuff like that at the low level. Yeah, exactly. And it, it handles a lot of the security stuff 
for you, which you don't want to be dealing with, really. Um, or I don't want to be dealing with, really, because I'm not, you know, I'm not experienced with that as much. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of general experience, but I'm experienced enough to know that I don't want to experience having to write that code. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So going back to this app, you mentioned it is server-side rendered, so using, you know, Jinja 2. But you also mentioned earlier, earlier on, that maybe you were using React as well. Do you want to go over, like, how this application is split up? Like, you know, do you have it, uh, like, front and back end in the same repo? Like, how, how, how are we working out here? Uh, front and back end is in the same repo. Um, the way I do it is I have, okay, so the way static files are managed in Flask by default is in a static folder. So I have a static folder and then JavaScript underneath uh, in one level down. And I have a dist folder and I also have a um, just folder where I hold my React components. And I basically use Webpack and I alter the Webpack configuration to compile all my JavaScript and all my React with Babel and all the stuff to change the ES6 to ES5 for older browsers and stuff like that. And it automatically compiles it to this dist folder. And then I serve it through uh, my HTML files in my Flask application. Uh, so that's how I'm doing things now. Um, I've implemented in the past. What I've done is if I want to have you know a mix of server-side rendered and also single-page application is I'll just... Uh, render an HTML file um, and then I'll input like a CDN for React for the React code at the bottom and then I'll just have that index HTML file act as its own single page application within the application itself. Uh, so that's what I've been trying to do with the course because the course is all server side rendered. It's all like just every section of the course is a different HTML file. Uh, so eventually in the future, I actually want to move on to that. I want to have it as a single page application. There just hasn't been a need for that yet because I'm still updating the content of the course and stuff. And that's probably more important than worrying about the UI right now. Okay. So maybe at like a high level, what you have now is basically the equivalent of like server side, but sprinkles a jQuery, but instead of jQuery, you're using React components because eventually maybe you want to go API backend, but React front end on the course player later. Yes, exactly. For, for just the course. Uh, just to make it more interactive because I have some ideas about um, including like uh, multiple choice questions as people go through the text, um, which I can obviously do with vanilla JavaScript and stuff. It's That's not too difficult, but I would like to have something where I keep track of all the questions across different sections, and that's not possible if each section is server-side rendered. Uh, so it's something I want to move on to eventually. It's just it hasn't there hasn't been a need for it now. Right. So before you mentioned that you are using Webpack and, you know, you use like ES6 JavaScript, do you use anything to process your CSS like SAS or something else? I use a separate uh, NPM module called NPM SAS, I believe it's called. And basically what it does is it runs recursively and it watches for changes in my SAS directory. So as I'm writing SAS, um, it will automatically compile the SAS to CSS, and I can see the changes in my browser while I'm developing. Uh, and it's it's just a um, yeah. Uh, I just wrote a command in my package.json um, where I pretty much just run a command called like npm. Uh, it's either npm SAS or npm start, um, and basically it just recursively watches my SAS directory and then compiles it to CSS. It's great. 
Okay. Was there a reason why you went with that solution versus not using like a webpack loader for it? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I I didn't actually use webpack um until recently, um when I wanted to start um compressing all my JavaScript together because my application was just there was like JavaScript like kind of like everywhere, and um that's because most of my code was actually vanilla JavaScript. Most of it was not React. I think I only have two portions of my site uh that actually deal with react um there's one for like a pop-up like a modal and there's one for when you go to the blog post section on my site you can uh switch through the categories um that uses react so there wasn't actually that much react but there was also a bunch of javascript just like everywhere and it was like a hot mess and i just kind of use webpack to like organize everything and separate things and modules and use you know uh require and stuff like that um so the reason i have it separate is because i kind of started with npm run sas and i didn't really have a need for webpack in the beginning and then over time i just incorporated webpack and now i just have this sh- um, this split okay so going back to the overall application itself you're using flask on the back end but we didn't get a chance to go over what web server you happen to be using is it gunicorn Whis- you or something else it is gunicorn um just because that's the most common I've seen with Flask. Um, I also, the way I learned Flask um, is from Miguel Grimberg, his uh, blog site on, um, it's over at miguelgrimberg.com or something like that, um, where he basically teaches people how to make Flask applications for free. Um, It's probably the most popular blog series uh, for Flask. I'm sure you probably heard about it. Um, And he uses Unicorn and he also uses Heroku. Um, He also teaches you how deploy on Linux, but the easiest one was Heroku for me to follow. Um, so I take a lot of inspiration from him when I'm building my applications and stuff. Cool. Yeah, I'm familiar with his work. I also have a Flask course as well. Uh, different opinions on certain things, but at the end of the day, it's all Flask, so it is all good. So going back to your application again, uh, maybe we can go over the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned you are using SQL Alchemy here. Uh, do you use Postgres or MySQL or something else? Yes, I use Postgres because uh, Heroku actually has an extension uh, for Postgres and it just works really well. But yeah, I use Postgres. Uh, when I'm developing and when I'm testing, I use SQLite. Obviously, I would never take SQLite to production. It's just not meant for production, but I use it for like testing and stuff. Uh, but I use an object relational mapper just because I'm, I, I, I don't like write, writing raw SQL queries. And also, um, I like thinking about things in terms of objects and classes. It just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so that's the reason I went with SQL Alchemy and an object relational mapper as opposed to just raw SQL queries. Interesting. So you mentioned you do use SQLite for testing. Do you just not run Postgres locally then on your DevBox? I don't. I don't. Uh, the way that Postgres is set up for Heroku, I believe, is on the cloud in AWS. Um, and I just have a local dev server that basically just has a different version. It has the same database tables, the same migrations, the same everything. It's just different information in the actual database. But I just will never use SQLite for production. It's just too lightweight. Right. So then I guess you're not using any Postgres-specific features then? like maybe full text search or other lower level like database constraints, like certain things that may exist only in Postgres, but not in SQLite? There's some things I have encountered, but it has more to do with SQLite as opposed to Postgres. I'm like blanking 
on a specific example right now, but I have run into problems where in my migration code, um, when I'm changing a table or something, SQL Lite won't do it for some reason, but Postgres will. So I have to have um, basically environment variables that tell me if I'm in production or I'm in development. And if I'm in development, I know I'm using SQLite, so I'll run a different type. I'll run the migration differently, and I'll run the migration differently if I'm in production. So there has been cases where that actually does happen. I'm just blanking right now on a specific case. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, have you ever considered using something like maybe Docker in development so you can run Postgres a little bit easier? Because it always, it makes me, like, I'm not here to, like, judge your setup, but it always makes me scared a little bit to use a different database in testing and development versus uh, what's happening in Prod. I'm not familiar with Docker. I know you do a lot of stuff with Docker. Uh, I'm really familiar with Heroku, which is why I chose Heroku. Almost all of my development decisions here are because I'm more familiar with the technology and I just wanted to use my bread and butter because I, I had this product idea that I knew people wanted and I was like, let me just get this to market as quickly as possible. I don't want to play around with like fancy technologies and stuff. I want to do what I know so I can get this done. Um, so I went with Heroku and I didn't really go with Docker. I do need to look into Docker though. It's just in the web development field, there's so many, there's so many technologies that you have to learn. Um, it's hard to keep up honestly. Yeah, for sure. It's a never-ending uh, learning spree, basically. It's not always a problem because, uh, I mean, if you're, if you want to be a good developer, you have to, you have to be, you have to be accepting of the fact that you're, you're going to have to constantly learn things. You're going to have to constantly learn things to have to keep up, but it's still, I, I mean, the amount of things I have to keep up with, it's, it's tough sometimes. So. Yeah, no, the learning part is partly why I really love being a developer. I like, I like that process to learn new things from ground zero. So going back to this app here, you know, you said you're a big fan of, of using Heroku. Did you look at possible alternatives before you landed on using Heroku? No, not really. Um, I just use her. I know that's a terrible answer, but I just use Heroku because I'm comfortable with it. I also liked um, how deploys are managed by Git, which I'm not sure if it's the same thing with Docker, but I, I just like that feature of Heroku um, because even though I'm using like a monolithic structure and I don't have like multiple deploys and stuff, I, I still use like feature branches and stuff to like, if I want to work on just my course, I have a feature branch just for my course. If I want to work on just the UI for the blog series, I have a feature branch for the UI series. And then I will merge, you know, my branches back into my master, obviously. And then I'll deploy it to like a staging environment, which I also can manage with Heroku, which is really nice too. And then if everything looks good, it passes the test and stuff, then I bring it to production. Um, so I just like the workflow in Heroku. The, the way I have it set up right now is just something I was really comfortable with. Right. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get into the woods here with Docker, but like Docker is a totally separate thing than Heroku in the sense that like you can use them together. Like Docker isn't like a hosting platform. It's something that you could potentially maybe use, you know, only in development or in production if you want. Oh, interesting. You know, it gives you an ability to run uh, your services just as you would across all environments. So like if you wanted to run, on a, on a, we didn't really get into this, but do you happen to use Celery and Redis also or no? No, I have no need for caching really. Uh, it's just the application isn't big enough. I don't make that many network requests. I mean, it, it, there's just it's just some overhead I, I don't need. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I only bring that up because like Docker is one of those things where it's like you're on your dev box and you want to spin up Celery and Redis and Postgres and Unicorn. You can do that in one command. And then you can basically set that up in your box, my box, or on a Linux server, or uh, on Heroku as well. Right. I guess I have that conception because I, I 
you'll see like YouTube videos and stuff like Docker versus Heroku, like which is better and stuff. And I guess like the way I see it uh, from other people talking about it is like you either use Docker or you use Heroku. But I didn't I didn't actually know you could combine them together. Uh, that's interesting. I might have to look into it then. Okay, so going back to your tech stack here, you know, we know that you're using Postgres, we have Unicorn with Flask. Is there anything else from your tech stack that we didn't cover yet? Um, so we use React a little bit in the front end, uh, vanilla JavaScript, mostly HTML, backend, SQL Alchemy, Flask login. That's pretty much it. I mean, we could talk a little bit about Stripe, we could talk about a little bit about the external APIs I use, which is most of my Python code. Uh, most of my Python code is just automating like business uh, practices, like my um, my mailing list and uh, Stripe and stuff like that, and emails and sending out emails to customers and sending emails to me for error reporting and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we pretty much covered most of it for the backend. The backend is pretty simple. Um, I just have one user class, one user table um, that pretty much checks. You know, it, it stores a password hash um, and it stores their their email um, and it stores pretty much, um, you know, whether or not they bought the product. And that's pretty much it. Um, and if they did buy the product, product, then they have access to the product. But other than that, that's pretty much all I have in my database. Um, also, like some other things like the last time they were seen, um, what they purchased on, just some general like marketing stuff and stuff like that. But. I mean, the backend is not too complicated. Most of it is just automation stuff, automation scripts that I've I've written uh, to just help streamline my business. Right. So, yeah, we can definitely talk a little bit about the Stripe stuff. So, number one, uh, are you using Stripe's, like, self-hosted checkout that they host for you? Or do you have this all in-house, like, your own checkout page? Right. So, the way I did it originally, um, this is just... Like I said, this is going to be a common theme. I just wanted to get the product out to market as fast as possible. So I used their checkout API, um, which I believe is what you're referring to, um, which doesn't allow much in the way of like customization, um, but it allows you to just prototype a checkout page like extremely quickly. And it still looks nice and it still probably converts pretty well. Um, so I was using that at first. The problem was that a user would have to register an account first and then uh, be brought to the checkout page, which I didn't want that to happen. I wanted it to happen all in one step because I didn't want there any to be any barriers really to, to purchasing the course. I wanted it to just be, you purchase the course and you make your username and password on the same setup. Uh, so what I did was I ended up just rewriting all that code, uh, the checkout API, and I ended up just using uh, their Stripe elements or JS library. Uh, to just make like Stripe components. Um, and I pretty much just made like a, a regular form like you do in Flask. And um, when they, if their um, payment goes through on the front end, uh, then it sends a form request back to my server. Um, and then I create a username and password for them. And I tell my database that they did indeed purchase the course and that's it. So yeah, initially I did start with the checkout API. Nice. So in the end then, when you, rolled up your custom solution using Stripe's API. Did you go with the payment intense API, like the stuff that is SEA compliant? Yes, I did actually. Um, so when they reach checkout, a new payment intent is created. Um, I'm not sure about that whole compliance thing. I, I think I read on the docs, it was uh, mostly to track the sales funnel. Um, that was the only thing I really read about 
you know, using the payment intent API or whatever, but I do create like a new payment intent object, I guess. And then once, um, once they actually complete the, the, the purchase, of course, the payment intent gets succeeded and then I get an event on my side, um, on my developer console and the Stripe uh, thing. So yeah, I am using payment intents. Nice. Yeah, no, the SCA is like the strong customer authentication stuff where you can't really, you know, you're not in full control over when the user might actually be able to execute that transaction. Like they might need to get a PIN number from their bank and, you know, it gets to be a little bit more tricky, much more tricky than it was maybe, you know, two years ago before this uh, really came into play. Okay, interesting. Okay. It, well, the way it's, it's at least what I saw in the, the Stripe documentation, it says it's mainly to help with the sales funnel. That was the only thing I really found on there, which I that was, I, I don't know why I thought, but I was like, okay. And I just implemented it. So cool. So as for other maybe SaaS tools that you might be using, you also mentioned that uh, you do send emails out. Do you want to go over which tool you use for that? Right. Well, um, I use regular Flask. Um, I use uh, SMTP handler, which is a logging handler uh, class that's like built into Python uh, to send me errors in my application and we actually haven't had an error in like weeks but still we do have errors from time to time um so i have uh the smtp handler whenever there's uh there's a logging level of error sends me an email um but i also have mailchimp um which is what i use to manage like my mailing list uh so i can give people like weekly newsletters on fantasy football and coding with fantasy football and stuff and also market to them um so i use mailchimp uh, to kind of automate that whole process and their whole API, um, which is actually pretty great. Right. So when it comes to that SMTP server, do you have that hooked up to something like SendGrid or Mailgun or even like a Gmail account? Uh, it's connected to a Gmail account. Uh, I have like a support account on um, on Gmail uh, with my domain, fantasyfootballdayapros.com. And um, it pretty much just sends emails from there. Again, I took that, I took that, that was inspiration from... Uh, uh, Miguel Grimberg. So, okay. So, as for the Mailchimp, do you have that integrated into your Flask app itself, or do you kind of just treat the marketing campaign stuff as like just external, like part of your business type of deal? Um, I do like using uh, Mailchimp's like UI, but I do have uh, certain aspects of it uh, automated. For example, I used to have when I had the old um, checkout API system. I could tell which users made an account and reached checkout, but then left. So I had that information available to me. Um, so I had some tools that automated uh, basically uh, checking my database and my the emails I had in my database and comparing it to what I had in my mailing list. And I would basically be able to tell which, which users made it to checkout but did not purchase yet. And then sometimes I'd send out an email to them. Uh, you know, asking, you know, why didn't they purchase or if they would like to go back and purchase or purchase fantasy football, whatever. Um, and some of them will actually go back and be reminded and purchase. So that was a good marketing tool that I kind of lost out on um, when I actually implemented the different payment system, but it was a trade-off I made. But yeah, I do have some automation tools like that. Uh, so I don't separate the marketing and the, the code completely. I think code can help with the marketing actually. Yeah, for sure. Especially in those cases there, like figuring out who bought what and then only emailing them like, you know, if they didn't, you know, if they kind of tapered off at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes they would come back. Yeah. So switching gears again, talking a little bit more about Heroku, 
Do you want to go over maybe some of the add-ons that you happen to use, like besides the Postgres one? And also, are you operating off of like their pay tier for the workers and dinos and Postgres, or is it all on like the free tier? It's on the hobby tier right now, so I pay about $7 a month. Um, I'm only using Postgres. I know they have some other tools like error report reporting ones, and um, I just haven't looked into them too much. Um, and I also want to keep my costs low. Um, I'm pretty sure if you add more extensions, it costs more. But the only one I'm using right now is Postgres, just because it's the only one I really need. But yeah, I pay about $7 a month for the hobby tier, and that's about it. Right, so that's the hobby tier on the Dino itself, but the Postgres one, isn't that like, I don't know what it is, like 50 or 60 a month, unless it's the free tier? Basically, the, the free tier and uh, or the free tier and the $50, $60 one you mentioned, I think is um, how often they do maintenance. Um, and just how often they're doing maintenance now is not really a big problem for me. Um, so I just opted to use the free one. I mean, free to 50 to 60 is a big jump uh, per month. So yeah, it's not like going from free on the Heroku uh, regular plan to $7 a month. It's it's a completely different decision. So I just haven't had the need for it yet. And like I said, my database is not that big. Uh, eventually it will be bigger. Um, I have plans to release more products on the site. I, you know, I'm kind of just like testing this assumption that there is an interest for Python to fantasy football because really no one is doing this sort of stuff. Like there's a couple blog posts online and stuff about using Python with fantasy football and using data science. And there's some people who use some machine learning models. Like there's this guy, Boris Chen, um, who uses a Gaussian mixture model to rank players in tiers uh, for the draft, which is a clustering algorithm. And he's like the only one doing this sort of analysis really. And also my competitor, I have one competitor, but I'm really just testing the assumption right now with the course and my blog series, whether or not there is an interest for this stuff, but I do plan on releasing like more products in the future. So it, the, the database will get bigger. Right. That makes sense. And I think also Heroku, maybe on the free tier, it does come down to maybe max number of rows in the database on the free tier. You get like some amount of thousands of them. That's it. That's actually, that's actually what it was. It wasn't maintenance. It was the amount of rows. And since I only have I'm not storing like comments and stuff and I don't have like a real chat application or anything like that. Um, so I'm not storing, I'm only storing a row in my database if someone buys my product and I'm nowhere near 10,000 yet. So there's just, it just doesn't make sense to advance, but it does make sense in a lot of uh, other applications where 10,000 is actually not that much. Yeah. That would be uh, very awesome if you woke up one day and you had 10,000 orders. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. So going back to what you said, earlier about, you know, using Git to deploy and you have a staging server, maybe now we can go and have a closer look at your deployment process. Like, what what is your entire flow from development to production? In terms of like a particular feature or? Yeah, so like, let's say you have an idea to either do a bug fix or add a new feature and you're hacking away on your dev box. Like, what is the process to go from that until it's up and running on Heroku live on the site? Um, well, typically I'll, depending on how big the feature is, um, or what I'm editing. So for example, if I'm just editing HTML and I always run like git status to make sure I'm only making changes to certain files. Um, if I'm, if I'm just doing HTML, I'll just push it straight to my production environment. Like who cares, you know, if I make a typo or something, um, if I'm doing something like backend code, then my process is a lot different. Um, I'll do, uh, like a feature branch and, um, typically work on that feature branch. Um, and then I'll test it, I'll write tests for it if they don't already exist. And then I will merge the branch back into my master branch 
and then I will push to my um, my staging environment, which is also managed with Heroku. Um, and then from my staging environment, if everything looks good, um, there's no bugs. I, I kind of like test it on my own uh, instead of doing like automated tests. I do do automated tests, but I also like test to make sure, you know, I click around, make sure nothing breaks. Um, if that's working too, um, then I'll just push it to like a production. Um, that's typically my workflow. Um, but it, it really depends what I'm making or what I'm working on at that, at that, um, that current stage. Like backend code is obviously more, I don't want to mess that up. Uh, HTML, you know, who cares? Right. Now as for that staging server, do you just have that running off of like a different subdomain in your domain? No, it's just a different, um, Heroku app. It's a completely different Heroku app. Um, and it just, it's just managed on the Heroku free tier. And it basically has the same code as my uh, main app, um, but it also uses like some different things. Like it uses, um, instead of using Stripe's like main service, it uses like the testing environment for Stripe. Like the I have the test uh, keys working on that, that staging environment. So I can also use like a test card and stuff like that uh, to be able to test my payments. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely don't want to have to do real transactions to make a test done to see if something is working. Yeah, no, that'd be a pain. Yeah. Now, speaking of pains, and this always comes up in uh, almost every web app project, uh, what have you done to plan for disasters or unexpected events? Do you do anything like backing up your database manually or do you kind of just lean on Heroku to do that? Yeah, I'm super paranoid when it comes to my database. Uh, this is my first application I've really brought to production where I get a lot of customers. Uh, like I said, I already have 325 in the past two months. And it's you feel a lot of responsibility um, to make sure that, you know, your database doesn't just get wiped. You know, that's that's something that happens when I'm developing, when I was developing previous applications. You know, to have a serious error in my database, writing something, I just wipe the database. You know, that's and sometimes you look on Stack Overflow and I have a problem with SQL Alchemy and all the answers are like, if you're in development, just wipe the database, who cares? And I obviously don't have that option in production. Um, so I'm super paranoid with the database. And whenever I do migrations, I'm very careful when I do do migrations. I try to think out, I try to thought out the, the database and how it's going to change over time already. And I already have a plan for making migrations and stuff like that. But I also do... Um, uh, Heroku Postgres also has a service where you can do backups of your data like every day. Uh, so I do one every 24 hours. And then when I do do a migration, I do a manual one again, right before I do the migration. So that's what I have right now setting up, um, set up for uh, managing the database and making sure information is not lost because uh, that's people's money that you're dealing with, really. Right. So in the worst case scenario, if things were to go really bad, like after a migration, you're only losing like maybe whatever, like a minute or two worth of database writes because you can always just go right from the backup that you just made. Yes, exactly. That's why I make a manual backup just in case, you know, the, the 24 hour one happened six hours before and I had a sale in between then. And then I make the migration, the migration messes up. Obviously, I lost all sales in between the six hours. So I make one, I make a manual one right before. Right. That makes sense. I guess like even too, like in the worst case scenario, if like catastrophe struck, you do have a record of that transaction on the Stripe end. Like you can probably recreate like the date and time of when that transaction happened. Yeah, I've, I've thought of that too. I've, hopefully it never comes to that because that would be awful. That would be the that would be the most stressful day of my life uh, trying to get those Stripe records back into my database. But 
yes, I've thought about that too. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, going back to what you said before about having a couple of hundred customers here, and you know, this would be like the worst day ever if you ever had to like manually go in there and change things around. Uh, on the topic of that, do you use any extra software to help you deal with like incoming support questions or no? Like if a customer, you know, they buy your course or whatever and they go through it and they're on like lesson 22 and now they have a question about that. Oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I encourage feedback from all my customers. I try to talk to, I try to talk to literally all my customers. I have that Slack chat, um, set up, which I heavily encourage everyone who buys the course to join. And I encourage everyone, if they have any questions, please contact me. Um, you know, I, I, I like talking to my customers. Um, you know, it's very rewarding hearing, um, you know, positive feedback and stuff. And they do help me a lot because it's, it's hard to think when you are a Python beginner, um, because it's been so long, it's been eight years. Um, so sometimes I do have trouble like explaining something that's so like second nature to me now, like for loops, I don't even think about how for loop really works. I just implement one. Uh, so talking to my customers, I, I, I try to talk to all my customers and the Slack channel has really helped a lot. I was thinking of implementing like, uh, kind of like a forum also on the course. This goes back to like the three week deadline I set up for myself. I just didn't have the time when I forced myself to actually get it out in three weeks. So I ended up just going with Slack. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do try to provide the best customer support possible. I try to reply to all my customers within a few hours. So, and that's probably the, the biggest thing, the biggest positive feedback I get back is how quickly I respond to people. So nice. Yeah. No customer support is very, very important. You know, I do the same thing. You know, I run a couple of tech courses, right? A flask and Docker one, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, customer support is like number one priority for me. Yep, exactly. Now, you mentioned uh, maybe introducing some forums there, possibly in the future or whatever. Would that be going through something like Discourse, or would you just create some type of like private discussion board built into the platform itself? I would like to create some type of private discussion board. Also to have like a sort of like a record of commonly asked questions and stuff like that. That's something else I've thought about with the course. Um, and that would be good with like the forums to, to allow people to... Um, search to them, um, search to the forum and search for questions and stuff. That's something I've wanted to implement, but it's just, I'm still working on the content for the course. I'm still trying to release like as much content as possible for people and trying to give people as much value. So it just hasn't, hasn't been a need as of right now, but I am starting to get to the point where I'm happy with the content I'm giving people. Um, you know, I'm happy with, uh, the amount of value I'm giving people, um, people are giving me back positive feedback. So I'm ready to move on to like bigger things with the site. Some more UI uh, based little apps within the site, like a forum and analytics portal, stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. It's always a never ending struggle on like when to work on the platform or when to work on creating new content uh, that the platform is going to serve. <laughs> yes. That's, that's honestly like at times I had just wished I used, I know this is going to sound terrible because we're on a running in production podcast, but I had just wished I used Gumroad because I was working so much on the platform. I was like, I'm not working on the content. I need to work on the product. And it was just like this constant struggle, but I couldn't be happier that uh, I ended up just going with my own site. Like I couldn't be happier because um, it, it just allows me to make constant updates to the content. Like I just have a lot more flexibility in how I can, where I can take this thing. Um, so I'm so happy. I just, I didn't stick with WordPress and like Gumroad and stuff. Right. Yeah, and I wouldn't even feel too bad, you know, if you were using those still, because it's always like 
you kind of need to start somewhere. And honestly, like spending six months to build a platform or a couple months, whatever, before you even know what, like if the thing is going to work is maybe not the best use of your time, right? Yeah, that's the whole concept behind, you know, the MVP. You only want to test those assumptions that are most risky to your business. And if you're not working on your content and you're not, you know, working on the product and you're working more on the platform, it's like you own a restaurant, but you're not working on the food. You're just working on the actual restaurant itself. I don't know, but maybe that's a bad analogy, but that's, that's the way I think about it. Like you got to work on the product. So it was like a constant struggle of like, oh my God, like I should have, I should have done it on Gumroad. Like this is taking so much time. I have to fix this bug here. Oh my God, I got, I got to go do the Stripe AD, API docs and stuff and try to fix this bug here. And, and I was like constantly thinking like, I'm not working on the product, but Overall, now, like two months later, I'm super happy. I just went with less because now I can also add things like different products to my site and I can use Stripe and I, I do have plans for more products. So Right. Yeah. And you can always add that discussion board, like however you want later, full text search, like there's no end to what you can do. Exactly. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Right. Well, kind of the common thing, a theme I've been talking about is really just if you're a one man show, kind of just use your bread and butter. You know, the most important thing is the product. So you want to bring it to market as quickly as possible. And using my bread and butter really helped, like just Python and Flask and stuff really helped me to just, you know, not focus so much on learning a new framework and stuff and just focus on, you know, getting this to market as quickly as possible. Um, so I would say like use what you're, whatever technology you're comfortable with. Um, there's a lot of great technologies out there. There's, you know, the, the differences between backend technologies nowadays is like, you know, it's it's really just preference, uh, I, I think, at least. You know, Flask, Django, it's really just, I, I don't like Django, Django because it's opinionated, but to each his own, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I would totally agree. Like the 95, like, or even 99% of use cases, it's like, well, if you're using, you know, any form of Node or Django, Flask, Rails, Phoenix, whatever, like, you can make your app. It's going to be good. Exactly. And the, the end user, like we, we get so hung up on uh, what tech stack to use and, and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the end user doesn't care. The end user cares that you're giving them value through your product. So just go out and build the product. Don't think about it too much is my advice, really. Yeah, no, that is great advice. And on that note, Ben, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Uh, thank you for having me, man. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Right. Uh, the site is at https slash slash www.fantasyfootballdatapros.com. Our Twitter handle is ffdatapros. Um, and we also have a GitHub, which is fantasydatapros. And that's it for our social links. But you can find us at fantasyfootballdatapros.com. Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop all that into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.